by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For of the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the meditator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Dr. M. R. DeHaan, physician turned theologian, observed this. He said the Bible is a book of blood. He said wholly distinct from all other books for just one reason. Namely, that it contains blood circulating through every page and in every verse. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the stream of blood. Now, Dr. DeHaan was an avowed premillennialist, and we would not agree with his false theories on the kingdom of Christ or many of his other ideas concerning uh, Christianity, but all of his uh, observances were not wrong. He correctly described the Bible as a book about blood. He was correct in that observation. Almost from the very beginning, the Bible student begins to read about the shedding of blood in response to sins committed by humanity. We begin to see it in Genesis chapter 3 when the first couple disobeyed what God asked them to do and an innocent animal had to be uh, killed so that clothes could be uh, made to cover their nakedness. It's a portrait of promised redemption given to all who will come to God demonstrating their faith through, through obedience. The first ten verses of the chapter under consideration directs our attention to the Old Testament Sacrificial system instituted by God through Moses. It speaks of a time when the Jewish high priest entered into the holiest of holy and he offered a sacrifice of blood to God on behalf of all the people. All those animal sacrifices, even from the time of the patriarchs, were symbolic. They pointed to a sacrifice that would come at some point in the future and one which would be the final sacrifice for sin, one that would, in fact, take sin away. Not only was it symbolic, all those sacrifices during those years never saved a single person from sin because every year they were remembered again. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. Now, May we never misunderstand those sacrifices were absolutely without doubt necessary if that person was ever going to enjoy the blessings of eternal life. And without them, those who lived under those laws would never have been saved from their sins. Now our passage this morning explains those very truths to us. And it pictures Jesus' blood as a priceless gift from God. The title of the sermon this morning is Why Jesus' Blood is Priceless. 
The writer of Hebrews described for us the impossibility of salvation without it. Not just for those who lived during the Christian dispensation, but for those who lived during the patriarchal dispensation, those who lived under the law of Moses. When Christ shed His blood, it cleansed all those godly people. It did so because they lived in observance to God's laws under whatever time period they lived. When the patriarchs were obedient to God's laws, when Christ died on the cross, His blood cleansed their sins as well. When all those Jews who lived under the law of Moses faithfully offering those sacrifices as they were told to offer and all those other myriad of laws under which they lived, when Christ died on the cross, His blood cleansed their sins also. Without Christ's blood, they wouldn't have been saved. Without their obedience to the laws under which they lived, they would not have been saved. But it all came down to the cross. The blood flowed backward as it flows forward. It is wise to regularly remind ourselves why Jesus' blood is so important to all of us. Not just us who live in the present, but why it was so important to all those who lived in the past. And allow that Knowledge to affect us in the ways in which we live. I believe if we allow the real, brutal, and deadly sacrifice of Jesus to be forefront in our minds, it would become easier and easier for the world to live in accordance with His directives. If we just consider it for what it actually is. Understanding why Jesus' blood is priceless it is priceless because of what it purchased. That's our first point this morning. The writer of Hebrews explained the blood shed was his own blood. That made it personal. It is priceless because it is personal. The Old Testament sacrifices could not save because an animal cannot choose to live a perfect life and then willingly give itself to those it loves. An animal can only be chosen by another person. That person has to, on his behalf, go out and choose the best of the flock. It has nothing to do with that animal personally, right? It has everything to do with the one doing the choosing. When the first couple introduced sin into the world and all who came after followed their example, a special propitiation for sin was required from that point forward. It had to happen at some point in the future. And it took the sacrifice of an innocent, faithful, and sinlessly perfect individual to die on the cross to pay the price that sin costs. Sin has a heavy price attached to it. When he died on the cross, Jesus gave his blood and it purchased the church and it allowed sin to finally be forgiven, Acts 20, 28. The reason for that, sin requires a certain payment. And that payment, according to Paul the Apostle, Romans six twenty three, is death. That's justice. For the wages of sin is death, period. That's the price tag. When you go to buy something, you might haggle over the price. You go to buy a car, you might get a better deal. You go to buy this or go to buy that, a house or whatever the case may be, you might be able to negotiate 
sin has a fixed price to it. Its wages is death. Period. It has to be paid. And it took Jesus' very special sacrifice to take care of that debt. Or else, everyone else had to pay the price themselves. The blood of Jesus is priceless because it took the place of our own blood. Someone was going to pay the price. Period. That's justice. He paid the price for sin, allowing those who were obedient to God to be able to stand justified in the sight of God without giving their own blood, and that is the remedy for sin. That's why God can be a just God. We study the book of Romans, and that's what it's all about. How can God be just without destroying the whole of humanity? Because the debt was paid. I don't know if God's creation can fully understand how priceless Jesus' blood is. Paul described how Jesus left the glory of heaven, how He lived among the people of the world, being mistreated and ultimately murdered so that humanity could avoid that penalty. Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. I don't know if the people of the world can fully wrap their minds around and comprehend that and appreciate it like it ought to be appreciated. Jesus' blood is priceless because of what it purchased. It was a personal sacrifice, but it was a permanent sacrifice. That makes it priceless. The writer described Jesus' purchase as one that obtained eternal redemption. You see, that makes it permanent, doesn't it? There would never be need for another. There would never be another sacrifice offered upon an altar anywhere in the world that would be associated with a person's sin ever again. Wasn't needed. He did it. The word eternal means never ending, doesn't it? It's over. It's never going to stop. And redemption means the payment has been released. The price was paid in full. That is what he purchased for the world. We need to understand that. It's important to know Just because He paid the price for me, though, doesn't mean I have to accept it. Gifts can be turned down. Just because someone wants to give you a gift doesn't mean you have to take the gift. Have you ever seen those videos of that poor guy who decided to to spring upon his girlfriend that ring and ask her to marry him in a very public place and he didn't, you know, try to test the waters first and then he does that and she runs off as she says no, and he's standing in front of everybody at the ball game, and there he is. You know, you don't have to take the gift. See, we have to understand that, right? Jesus offers a gift, and we do not have to take it. But we better take it. And now here's the thing with a gift. It may have uh, conditions attached to it, right? That doesn't take away the aspect of it being a gift just because it has conditions attached to it. I can ignore what Christ did and continue to live in a manner inconsistent with His life or I can accept the gift. But if I accept the gift, the attachments of conditions are that I have to live in consistence with His sacrifice. I have to do the things He's asked me to do and it is still a gift. Throughout the book of Acts, 
those men who preached the message of God spoke of the free gift of salvation, but it still had to be accepted through obedience. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's pretty easy to, to understand that. In his first letter, Peter said this, 1 Peter 1 verse 2, He wrote to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. You see, a person can become a part of the elect and when they are obedient to Christ. That's part of the elect, right? There's this whole misconception that God says you are part of the elect or you're not part of the elect from eternity. Well, now Peter said make your calling and your election sure. Well, how, how can I do that? If God chose me from eternity to be a part of the elect or not be a part of the elect. That takes it right out of my hands. Well, someone has a miscommunication here. Either God's wrong or Peter's wrong. And if Peter's wrong, then God is at odds with himself. Because the Holy Spirit guided Peter to say, make your calling and your election sure. So did the Father and the Spirit disagree? That's an impossibility. No, we can make our calling and our election sure. And one can become a part of the elect when they are obedient, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. I have to elect or choose. That's what that is. We just went through an election here in Chattanooga, didn't we? We chose a particular candidate. That's up to me. And I lost both my votes. I don't know about you, but I lost both mine. But I did still cast two votes in the, in the city for mayor and council. Okay? I exercised my ability to cast my vote. So that's what we do when we want to become part of the elect. I cast my vote to make sure I live in accordance with the laws of God. That's how I become part of the elect. Jesus' blood is priceless because of what it purchased for the world and it is also priceless because of its power. That's our second point. It's priceless because of its power. His blood is able to cleanse, the writer said, it is able to purge. That's what that word means, right? Purge means to cleanse and to free from filth. The filth of the world. Notice that during the institution of the Lord's Supper, as they were about to drink the juice, Jesus said, Drink ye all of it, for it is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, 27 through 28. So when we participate in this memorial feast, this juice that we drink is representative to us and reminds us of that precious, priceless blood that Jesus shed and its power to remove sin. That's the purpose of a memorial, right? His blood is able to cleanse anyone from the sins of this world to purge us. But we have to be able to access it, right? We have to be able to come into contact with it somehow. Surely God's not going to put us upon this planet and give us a gift so powerful and so priceless and not tell us how to contact it, how to use it properly. 
We have to know how to do that, right? 1 John 1, 7. Peter taught the same thing on the day of Pentecost. He told those listening to save themselves from this untoward generation. And they could do that by repenting and being baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. See, that's how we come into contact. Paul said the same thing in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. We're buried into his death, and that's where we come into contact with his blood. That's what the whole idea of being buried into his death. It's all about his blood. We come up to walk in a new life, right? It's his blood that has the power to cleanse. And You know, we often sing a hymn written by William Cooper. And it speaks of a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins where sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty sins. You see, without the blood of Jesus and our being baptized into His death, again, Romans 6, 3, and 4, we cannot take advantage of the power of Christ's blood. That's absolutely necessary. And when we consider how priceless Jesus' blood is, we should be encouraged to live our lives according to His standards. We ought to live up to His standard, right? That ought to make us want to do that. Let's live up to Christ's standards. Let's not live down to the world's standards. Notice what He did. He, he suffered an unimaginable agony, a torturous death, so we could benefit from the power of His blood. He didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't ask for that. He did it for our benefit. He did it for us, right? He did it for us. And so we ought to live up to His standard. We must never overlook what He did or overlook what He has asked us to do. His blood is powerful enough to cleanse us and it is powerful enough to change us, right? When His blood is applied to the soul of the believer, it will purge the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know, the conscience, and I I think the article this week is about the conscience. The conscience is a wonderful thing, if trained properly, if trained properly. We have to be careful with our conscience. That conscience is a part of a person that allows him or her to choose between right or wrong, but it has to be trained properly. And, uh, you know, we notice in Acts 23, verse 1, that Paul, his whole life, had lived in a good conscience toward God, even as he murdered Christians. Well, his conscience was not trained, uh, trained properly. But later he trained his conscience properly according to the laws of God. And our conscience can help to guide us when trained properly. But it can't be a guide when it's not trained properly. We might train our conscience according to the standards of the world. Well, hey, that's not going to get it done, is it? That's what Paul had done previously in his life. He was a terrorist. He terrorized people. He threw them in jail. He murdered them. But when we allow the power of Jesus' blood to change us, we will see the dramatic difference in anyone's life. We will begin to develop the Christian graces that we call the Christian graces 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. But if that doesn't happen, Peter went on to say, 1 Peter 1, 9, that person uh, that uh, doesn't develop those, 
that that same person has forgotten what Christ has done for them, has forgotten that they had been purged from their past sins, that they had been cleansed. They've forgotten all of that. It's just like James said, you look in the mirror, then you walk away and you forgot what kind of person you are. Right? We've got to be careful about that. It's, a, it's that word purge again. Peter said, we might find ourselves living in those past sins. We've got to be careful. And when we look at the way Jesus interacted with people, have you ever noticed that when he went away from interacting with someone, they were never the same person? They had changed in some way. Now, they might have changed for the worse because they couldn't, couldn't handle what he said, but he still changed them. Jesus changes people. It's told of uh, one of the Reformation leaders that he was traveling after a Sunday service when a stranger approached him and, and he was robbed. And As the thief discovered that the man had very little money and, and some literature, as, as he was leaving, the man called out, Stop! And he turned around and he looked at him and the preacher said to him, he said, You may live to regret this sort of a life, but know this, if you ever do... The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. Now we're not going to agree with the theology of a Reformation leader, but that statement is correct. That statement is correct. Now years later, that same preacher was approached by a very successful businessman, and it was that robber. And he had thought about those words, and he had decided to change his life, and he went up and he said, you changed my life. He said, I didn't change your life. The blood of Jesus changed your life. And so he thought about that statement. Jesus changes the lives of people. Christ's blood is priceless because it has the power to cleanse us and it has the power to change us. We need to consider that, right? Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. It is priceless because of what it purchased. It is priceless because of its power. Now here's our last point. It is priceless because of what it promises. It's priceless because of what it promises. Well, what does it promise? Well, first of all, it promises freedom to the one who gives himself to the Savior. Freedom. Who, who doesn't want freedom? Ask the slave who doesn't want freedom. Ask the prisoner who doesn't want freedom. The person who's in jail, the person who's in, in prison somewhere, Ask him or her what they think about every single day. They think about freedom. Why? Because everything they know in life has been taken away from them. Their name has been taken away from them. They're, now they're just a number. Now they're just a number. They can't go where they want to go. They can't do what they want to do. Especially if you're in a maximum prison, right? You go out to that prison in Colorado, you don't even know where you're at within the prison. All you can see is the sky. They won't even let you have a window to tell, well, the mountains are over here, the mountains are over there, because you know what? If you can locate where you are in the prison, you can figure out a way to escape. They have a little window up top, and all you see is the sky. Even that one hour a day, when they let you out, if it happens to be daylight, all you see is the sky. And you don't even know if it's going to be during the day. You get one hour a day and it might be three in the morning. And if it's cloudy, you won't even see the sky. Hey, you might see some stars if it's not cloudy. 
but they want freedom. Freedom! You know, we talked in class this morning. You take things for granted that you've always had. We talked about the man born blind. He didn't have any idea about eyesight. The person who's had his freedom taken away, it's all he thinks about, right? Jesus promises freedom. He speaks, the writer does, of the redemption of Christ. The redemption of which he speaks comes through Jesus' blood because he redeems or he buys the slave back from sin. Saves him. When I think of that, I can't help but think of the person who's fallen into quicksand and someone is pulling them out of that quicksand or he's fallen into uh, some kind of something else and it's sucking him down into it and he's pulling him back and he releases the faithful from that bondage. The converted is given a brand new life. It's a free life. And that's why Jesus called it the new birth, John 3, 3 through 7, right? The Christian's been baptized into the death of Christ, killing the person of sin. That's what the whole idea of the cross is about. It's a killing machine. It's a weapon to kill, right? He comes out of that water to walk in a new life, a life of freedom from sin. You see, that's what people misunderstand. We talk about liberty and we talk about freedom in the New Testament. It's not the liberty to do whatever you want to. It's a liberty from something to prevent something from happening. It's a freedom from committing sin. It's a life of restriction to get a person to heaven. It's not overly strict. It's not overly strict. But it's strict enough. Isn't it sad when one turns back to the life he once lived and he begins to live in that sin again? Notice how Peter described that in 2 Peter 2, beginning with verse 20. This absolutely describes it perfectly. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those are Christians, right? Those are Christians. This destroys the denominational view that you can't lose your salvation. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire she got right back in the mud hole the dog a dog will eat anything right why would you want to do that Jesus blood is priceless because it promises freedom and it promises a future it promises a future Who doesn't want a good future? The future is eternity in heaven to the one who continues in obedience. You see, upon obedience to the plan of salvation, a faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living, a dedication to a life of righteousness, the faithful, you see, we become joint heirs with Jesus. Romans 8, 17. Think about that. Joint, common, Partners with Jesus. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement. Peter comforted his readers. 1 Peter 1 beginning verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy 
hath begotten us again unto a lively, a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. What do we have in this world that is incorruptible? That is undefiled, that will not fade away. Not a thing. The things we love most in this world are going to be destroyed one day and go away. And because of that, we have the assurance of the faithful living in heaven eternally. Because of what Peter said, John 14, 1 through 3. Those are some of the greatest words that have ever been spoken. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and gather you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. How do we know how to get there? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Because of that, we have that assurance. That is offered only to those who have been washed in the priceless blood of Jesus. Because there's no other way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. The Bible is a book about blood from the beginning all the way to the end. And it is a priceless blood. Genesis chapter 3, the veiled promise of a coming Messiah, the revelation, He's coming back. He gave His blood. We ought to concentrate and always remember the blood of Jesus, always recognizing why His blood is priceless. We should always honor His memory through the obedience offered to Him And that's how we honor Him, isn't it? When we do that, we can always know we're saved as we walk in the light, as His blood continuously cleanses us. 1 1 John 1, verse 7. If you have a need to answer the Lord's invitation, if you need to come back to Him through repentance, confession, and prayer, or through initial obedience to the gospel, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.